0: All right. Well, hey, good morning. Hey, if you could do me a favor and uh, get out your device, if you have a phone or whatever you use, I would tell you to silence it, but you already know that because I said it last week. This week, if you haven't already installed the uh, Church Center app, I would encourage you to do that with the Church Center app. You're able to kind of know what's going on in the church, stay in contact with your small group, and register for any upcoming events like the Family Fest that's coming up on July 25th. We want you to all join us for that. It's going to be at Fritz Park just in Old Town, and uh, we're going to meet from 5 to 8, the coolest part of the day. Wait, no, Uh, but it's still going to be great. We want you to register because we want to make sure that we have enough food for everyone. And so we'll uh, just, uh, you know, whoever registers, will double that amount and have a lot. And so we want you to join us for that. So, okay. with that said, last week, I said that unlike the writers of the TV series Lost, like God knew exactly where he was going uh, with his story of creation. In fact, that's what this series, Unfolding Grace, has been all about. This emphasis on unfolding, that God is telling a story piece by piece, book by book. He's he's telling this story of his grace and his glory throughout time. And God knows. God knows how to bring the story of creation and God knows how to bring your own personal story to a satisfying conclusion. In fact, I believe that we can be confident that the world we live in is actually the best of all possible worlds. Now I say that because, I mean, think about it, God knows everything. In fact, God knows every possible thing. And so God is the one who spoke the world into existence. And if there could be a better world than the world He has created, then He would have created that world instead. This is the best of all possible worlds. John Piper explains it like this. He says, God governs the course of history so that in the long run... His glory will be more fully displayed and His people more fully satisfied than would have been the case in any other world. If we look only at the way things are now in the present era of this fallen world, this is not the best of all possible worlds. But if we look at the whole course of history, God's unfolding grace from creation to redemption to eternity and beyond and see the entirety of God's plan, it is the best of all possible plans and leads to the best of all possible eternities. And therefore, this universe and the events that happen in it from creation into eternity, take it as a whole, is the best of all Possible worlds, God knows exactly what He is doing. God has a plan for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He is always moving His plan forward, and God's consistency and God's constancy are unrivaled in all the universe. In fact, I'll I'll say this, the failings of his people, like your personal failures, like your unfaithfulness, like your missteps and heartache, the failings of God's people will not thwart the plan of God. Like there is never a time where you have messed up so bad that God's like, oh my goodness, okay, Back to square one. Let's see how we're going to fix this. No, God is sovereign and he will not let your failings or my failings thwart his plan. He is moving it forward. Like this week we will read in Ezekiel 34 to 37. That's where we're going to be doing our reading and Unfolding Grace. It was written by the prophet during the time of the Babylonian exile. And in chapter 36, God tells Ezekiel this. He says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of Of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Like God is saying, hey, Israel, I'm about to do something, but it's not because you're awesome. It's because I am. It's not because you're good, but because I am. It's not because you're great, it's because I am. I am going to act in a way that exalts my holy name. You are not my top priority. The world doesn't revolve around you. You are not the center of this story. He says, and I will vindicate the, vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, as you read that, do you have this thought that, man, God sounds pretty self-centered, like it's all about God. It's all about him, his name and his glory. Like what's up with that? I want you to understand this, guys. God is the most God-centered being in all of existence. Hear that again? God is the most God-centered being in all of existence. For God to place anything or anyone, including you, above Himself would make Him guilty of idolatry. God can love what is supreme. Like, that can be His focus. But to place anything above His own glory would be idolatry. Like, one of my... Proudest moments as a youth pastor at Hill Country Bible Church of Austin came when, on a Sunday morning during the first service, they introduced a song that they had never done before as a church. It was a song where the chorus sang, uh, "Like God loves people more than anything, more than anything. God loves people more than anything." And as we were singing that, I thought. Well, that's not true. I mean, is that true? Like that can't be true. God doesn't love people more than anything because God is not an idolater. And so at the end of the service, I made a beeline for the front of the church to talk to our senior pastor and basically say, what the heck? Like, why are we singing that song? That's so wrong and my most proudest moment, proudest moment as a youth pastor came when I got there and four of my students had beat me there. And they were surrounding the pastor and saying, listen, God does not love people more than anything. He loves His own glory more than anything. The fame of His name more than anything. God is not guilty of idolatry. And you might be thinking, if that's the case, how is that any different from that song that we sing where we say, he didn't want heaven without us. And so Jesus, you brought heaven down. Like, isn't that the same thing? But I I want you to understand as you hear that song as a whole, that song, which is what a beautiful name, really speaks of the heart of God in pursuit of his bride. Like, if you sing the entire song, you read through the entire song, who is the focus of the song? It's not you. It's not the people. It's Jesus. Who is the hero of that song? Only God. You see, God, by his own sovereign choice, not based on your intrinsic worth, But God in his own sovereign choice, his own free voluntary choice has set his heart on certain sinners like us. What the Bible calls the elect, such a mystery that he didn't want heaven without us. And so he brought heaven down. God was not wringing his hands, thinking, "I'm lonely." He was complete in Himself, but He set His heart on us. In short, the passage I read and the song that we will actually sing later is all about Him. We would all do well to remind ourselves daily of the opening words of uh, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. The First chapter, chapter 1 begins with these words. It's not about you. It's not about you. Like, why does he begin the book that way? Because that's where we begin. That's square one for us. That's our norm. Like, sin turns us in, like, on ourselves, and our natural focus is on us. Like the news, how it affects us, what, like, what's going on in life, how that affects us, whether it's a struggle or a blessing, what that says or does for me. It's not about us. Guys, you are not the center. God is. But God's glory and your eternal good are not in conflict. As John Piper has said, and it's kind of the motto of his life, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God's glory and my holy joy are not in conflict. And you see that in this passage and you see that God will rescue Israel for the sake of His great name. And so as Israel endures 70 years in exile they can find comfort in that promise that God will rescue them for the sake of His name. About 100 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah, God told them the same thing. He told them in Isaiah 48, for my name's sake, I defer my wrath. Like I've made a promise not to blot out Israel. And I keep my promises. And so for my name's sake, I defer my wrath for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off for my own namesake, for my own namesake. I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another guys. There are two things like we talked about last week that God cannot and will not do. He cannot lie and he cannot change. And so he swore to Israel that he would rescue them, that he would bring them back to the land and he will do it. We, this side of the cross, should find great comfort in the consistency of God, in the constancy of God, in a God who acts for his glory and for our good because God will also rescue us. For the sake of His name. Like God has sworn by His own name. And He does not lie. And He will not change in regards to your salvation. If you are in Him, there will never come a time in eternity where God gets tired of you. Where He gets angry at you where he remembers one of those thoughts he threw into the deepest sea and separated as far as the east is from the west, when he remembers some of your sin and thinks, oh, this guy, I am done with him. It's never going to happen because God has sworn by his great name and he rescues us for the sake of his great name. He does not rescue us because we are great, but because he is. God knows exactly what He's doing, and as I said last week, there are no plot holes in the story of creation, and there are no plot holes in your own personal story. You can think about your failings, or your struggles, or what you're going through right now. There are people in our church who are going through sickness, who are going through great loss, who are struggling with so many things. And guys, you need to understand there are no plot holes in your story. Nothing is wasted. This light and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What that means is that God is able to take all the broken and shattered Pieces of your life and fit them together in a magnificent and glorious mosaic that one day we will stand in his presence and see and think, How, how, God, how, how did you take this and make this for your glory and for my good? Guys, remember, your life is not a tragedy, your life is a great adventure. That's not just for the teenagers. We chose the title, The Great Adventure, because it exemplifies what the Christian life is supposed to be. Your story is not over. Divorce doesn't have the last word. Church, addiction does not get the last word. Abortion does not get the last word. Sexual struggle does not get the last word. Death does not get the last word. Jesus does. Your story is not over. God is not done with you. And God knows the plans He has for you. In fact, in Jeremiah 31 last week, we saw that God said, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. And we saw that this new covenant... Solved the problem of our serial unfaithfulness, the only thing that was consistent about the nation of Israel was their rebellion right like were they ever like were they ever good for longer than a generation like over and over they would fall into sin, and God would raise up a hero, either a judge or a prophet or a king, to deliver them and <laughs> In the memory, the immediate memory of how messed up it was, they followed God, but then that generation dies and their children, they take it to a whole other level. But the new covenant solves the problem of our unfaithfulness by bringing the law from the outside. It's no longer just tablets of stone and placing it on the inside as God said, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And so about a hundred years later, God expands on this promise. And he explains a little bit about what he means when he says in Ezekiel 36, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'm coming for you. I'm going to rescue you. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Notice the repetition. I will, I will, I will. Look what I'm going to do. It doesn't say, hey guys, clean yourself up. You're a mess. Clean yourself up and then you can come to me. Man, I'm so glad it doesn't say that. In fact, it says just the opposite. God says, I will gather you to Myself. I will gather you from all your waywardness and all your wandering, And I will wash you. And I will take away your sin. And I will make you brand new. You see, in Jeremiah 31, God promised to forgive and to forget, which is pretty awesome, But in in Ezekiel 36, God's promises to cleanse us of our sin and actually take it away. And you got to wonder, how? Because I know Israel's track record, and I know my track record. How is he going to do this? Well, he goes on to say that I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, at this point in the story that we've been following in the Bible, no one needs to ask, why do they need a new heart? Why do they need a new spirit? Why does God need to take away that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh? Because we know what a train wreck they have been. Like they need and we need something better than just another chance, not even a second chance, a billionth chance. Like we need something more permanent than just generational faithfulness, right, where One generation gets it and they get in line and they follow Yahweh and then they die and the next generation goes off the rails again. We need something more permanent than generational rescue. And we need something more than just a better set of laws. We need a new heart. We don't just need bypass surgery. We we need a transplant. Because, you see, our problem is that we're not simply sick in our sin and need some sort of holy antibiotic. We're dead in our sin, and we need Jesus to raise us. I mean, that's actually what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus the Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, came to him at night and said, Hey, teacher, we know that you come from God because nobody can do the works that you do unless God is with them. And instead of saying, why, thank you, Nicodemus, Jesus responded, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, unless you're born from above, unless you're born of the Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. Guys, that's what, this is what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was saying, listen, your problem isn't the law. The law just shows you your problem. Your problem is sin and your problem is spiritual death. And unless, unless you're awakened by God, unless He takes away that heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, unless He gives you new life, you will not see the kingdom of God. In fact, this is, this is what the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37 is all about. You read that passage and you think, wow, that's weird. Right? But God, right after making this promise, takes Ezekiel to this vast valley of human remains, of dry bones, to illustrate what he's been talking about. And he asked he asked uh, the prophet this question. Can these bones live? And, you know, Ezekiel is smart enough to say, uh, you know, like he doesn't know, but he knows that there's nothing impossible for God. And so, you know, and so it says in verse 5 of chapter 37, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay flesh upon you and cover you with skin. And I will put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord God because only God can make the dead alive Only God can speak that word of life, can breathe in the very breath of life and give the spirit of God to ignite a dead heart. I mean, this is exactly what Paul wrote about to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 when he said, hey guys, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't sick. You weren't having a bad day. You weren't a little bit off course. It wasn't an oops. No, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, we all once lived in the passions of flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Like we all lived like dead people. Lost people do lost things. We all lived like the... Like the dead that we were, we were walking dead, living in the lifestyle of the dead. We were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. As we sang, as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost. You looked upon my sad estate and led me to the cross. We were by nature children of wrath, wrath like the rest. Of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead, He made us alive in Christ. He breathed in us the breath of life. He speaks over us live. See, this is what happened to us when God gave us a new heart and a new spirit. This is what happened to each of us who were in Christ when God took away the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. This is what it means in Scripture to be born again. This is what it means in Scripture to be raised with Christ. This is what theologians mean when they talk about regeneration. And can I just say, I mean, don't get me wrong here, but it's great, it's awesome, but it's not enough. It's really not enough. I mean, how often have you said, I will never do that again, only to do that thing? Like within a week, within a month. How many times have you written down a resolution only to break it within a day? See, we need more than simply a hard reset. We need more than just some sort of cosmic second chance we need more than just a return to the innocence of eden because that fruit is still there and we desire it and we may last longer than adam and eve by a week by a month by a year but over time we're gonna think wow that really looks good and it's supposed to make me wise And we'll take it. And so the astonishing good news of this promise from God is that He will actually give us more than a new heart. You see, God won't leave us like He found us. That's what Isaiah is saying here. That's what God is communicating to His people. God won't leave us like He found us. Maybe you've heard God loves you just the way you are, but loves you way too much to let you stay that way. God promises in verse 27, I will place my spirit within you and underline this in your Bible, cause you, cause you to follow my statutes and carefully obey or observe my ordinances. Like God's going to give us his spirit Like along with a new heart, He will give us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will actually enable us to follow God. It will actually enable us to break the cycle of serial unfaithfulness. Like God promises not simply to give us a new life, He promises to give us His life. Like God is saying that He will plant Himself deep within our hearts. And He will begin to change us from the inside out. Like our desires will change. Our affections will change. Our wants will change. Like all of that flows from the hearts. The decisions that we make all flow and are driven by the heart. And so God won't leave us how He found us. That's what Titus is talking about in, or Paul's talking about in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. When he writes, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And when he brings salvation, what does he bring with it? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present life. Paul is saying that when grace shows up, life change comes with it. Transformation comes with it. When the gospel is planted deep in the heart of the person, the Holy Spirit of God comes with that and changes them from the inside out. Like, have you ever experienced that? I mean, if you're a believer, you've experienced that. There have been times in your life where you thought, that's weird. Like, why am I doing this good thing? Nobody's watching me. Like nobody's watching. I'm not doing this because my wife or husband or friend or the pastor is seeing me do it. Like I really, I want to do it. Like I want to do this thing not because I fear the consequence, but because it's the desire of my heart. Where did that come from? Guys, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Like why, Christian, do you not just hate sin because of its consequence, but there's something in you now that causes you to actually loathe sin and hate what it does to your heart and hate what it does like to your testimony and hate how it dishonors your Savior. The Holy Spirit did that. He changed you from the inside out and that's the work of sanctification. Like I told you before, before I was a Christian, when I was a teenager, I had lived a really moral life up till I was about 17 years old. And like, I I always compared myself with my brothers and my sisters and my dad. And there was a lot of alcoholism, a lot of drug addiction in my family. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I'm going to be moral and good. And can I just say, by the time I was 17 years old, I was bored, I don't know if you know that this, but morality in itself is boring. Like I had peace in my heart, but I had no fun. There was nothing exciting going on. My brothers were having a lot of fun. They had no peace, but they were too drunk to even notice it. They were having a good time, and I thought, I'm ready to join the good time. And so I decided, once again, I was so arrogant and self-righteous, I decided when I turned 18, which is the legal drinking age at that time, I'm going to drink. If I want to go to a party and drink a little bit, have a few, I'm going to do that. I mean, I'm not going to be breaking the law. I'm just going to do it. If I want to go to a club, if I want to go to a bar, I'll I'll do that. I'll do whatever I want to do. And then I met Jesus. Jesus. And two months later, I turned 18. Did I go to the bars? Did I go to the clubs? Did I go to the parties? No. Not because I had discovered a rule. Because I didn't want to. In two short months, Jesus had already changed my want to. And that's what He does often not as quickly as we wish he would, but that's what he is working in our lives and in our hearts. Understand this, the strength to follow your command could only come from you. Like God will not leave you like he found you and God will finish what he started, church. I am confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Like He has committed that those He justified, made right with His Father, He's also going to sanctify and glorify. Like He is saving us. He has saved us from the penalty of our sin. And He's saving us even now from the power of our sin in our life. And ultimately, He will save us from the very presence of sin. So what part do you play in all of this? Like, how how are you an active participant in your own sanctification? Because, I mean, if you read the passage over and over again, it says, God says, I will do this. I will, I will, I will. And so what do we do? Like, do we just... Let go and let God? Is that what we're supposed to do? Can I just tell you that in my experience, those who take that approach, who just let go and let God, end up letting go and blaming God. Right? I'm not the person I'm supposed to be, and it's your fault. I let go. I gave my life to you. I I put it in neutral. Why didn't you drive? Jesus, take the wheel. Come on. Right? And I ran off the road. It doesn't work that way, guys. The scripture tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Like God is working in you, and we need to work out what He's working in. Like God is changing our desires. He's changing our want to. And we need to steer our feet in our lives in the direction of those right and biblical desires. And so let me just share with you quickly four ways you can participate in your own sanctification. Four ways you can work out what God is already working in. And here they are. You can believe, pray, practice, and remember. First, believe. Believe. Christians, you need to believe that you are who God says you are. Believe that you are who God says you are. If you are in Christ, you're a child of God, a son or a daughter. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're seated with him in the heavenly places. You are no longer a slave to sin but you're a slave to righteousness. Like we need to live out of that identity. We need to understand and embrace our new identity in Christ. In fact, I did a whole series on this called, Who Do You Think You Are? just a couple years ago. Like Paul knew this. Paul believed this. In fact, he was so caught up in his identity in Christ that he wrote one of the most convoluted verses I've ever read. In Galatians 2.20, he writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, Paul, are you dead or are you alive? Like, which one is it? You can't have both. And his answer is, listen, I don't know where I ended and Jesus began. But my life is so caught up in him, in his identity that I am living out, that I know, I know, even though I was dead, I was raised with him. And now I'm hidden with Christ in God. Like we we need kind of really to be reprogrammed or maybe deprogrammed from a wrong way of thinking. Like, you know, as an example, uh, we all wore masks for, eight, for 18 months, right? Any, anywhere we went, anywhere in public, any grocery store, we had to wear a mask. How did it feel for you the first time you took off that mask at HEB? Did you feel weird? I did. I'm like, am I doing something wrong here? Like, are these other, like, who are these germy people just breathing, like, without a covering on their face? This is, oh, I don't know. I don't like it. I felt really uncomfortable. I had to deprogram myself from the last 18 months. Well, guys, you have lived your whole life in the flesh, following its desires, and you need to be deprogrammed and understand that you are no longer a slave to sin. That is not who you are. You are now a slave to righteousness. You are Christ's servant. You are God's son and daughter. Like we need to spend a lot of time in Romans chapter 6 where Paul unpacks what this looks like. But we need to believe that we are who God says we are. Second, we need to pray for new affections and desires. This isn't letting go and letting God, but we do need, we need desperately to pray that God would change our heart. You know, you read in Philippians chapter one, as Paul prays for the church, he's praying that God would do a work in their heart, that he would expand their heart and change them. Like they would love more deeply from their hearts. If Paul can pray that for us, we can pray that for us. Like in the Psalms, it says in Psalm 119, verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Like the psalmist there says, God, incline, literally stretch out my heart. Expand my heart and let it reach toward your law and not toward things that are empty. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And then Psalm 141, verse 4, Do not let my heart incline to any evil. God, I don't want to stretch out my heart anymore to the things that are killing me, the things that are trapping me, the things that are enslaving me. God, I don't want that anymore. The things that I thought were freedom are really slavery. And God, I don't want that anymore. There's a really good book, really small book by J.D. Greer called... um, Stop asking Jesus into your heart. It's all about assurance of salvation and walking and living in that security. Let me give you the exact opposite advice of the title of that book. Christians, keep asking Jesus into your heart. Like, uh, keep asking Jesus into your heart, not, not because you're insecure in your salvation, but we need to live in that gospel moment. We never need to get to a point where we think we can do this on our own. We need to be praying every day God, I need you. I'm lost without you. I know my heart and I know what it's inclined to do, incline my heart to you, God. Because I'm trapped. I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I have trusted Him as my Savior and Lord. God, take over my life. Change my affections. I give it to you afresh this day. Keep asking Jesus into your heart. And then practice what God preaches. Like God says, He's going to change our hearts so we can follow His statutes and observe his ordinances. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that God has already, right now, given the Christian everything they need, everything for life and godliness. That's not an overstatement by Paul. Paul is saying, listen, Christian, God has given you everything, every resource you need by His Spirit, by His Word, by His people, He has given you everything you need for life and for godliness. So the believer can can never say, I can't do that. I, I can't do that. I can't, I can't do that thing God's calling me to do. I can't stand against that temptation. Like years ago, I was talking with a guy who said, hey, listen, I know what the Bible says. It says, no temptation has seized me except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I can bear. But with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so that I can stand up under it. I know the Bible says that, but it doesn't feel tr- true to me. Because... I got to tell you, the pull toward what I'm given to, this addiction, this sin, the pull is so hard that I just think there's no way I can say no to it. Like in the midst of it, in the throes of that pull to that sin, like it's like there's nothing that can rescue me. I'm going to do it. And so I just asked him, I said, well, do you feel that way right now? What? What? I mean, right now, like right now as we're sitting at Denny's having breakfast, do you feel like you're about to bolt out of here and then give yourself to that sin? Well, no, I don't, I don't feel that way right now. But you see, God's given you a reprieve. Like he's given you just this window of opportunity. And during these windows of opportunity, we need to build in some safeguards into our life and we need to invite the help of others in the body of Christ, and we need to pray like our lives depend on it for new affections and a renewed heart. Finally, we need to remember. Remember who you were when Jesus found you. Ezekiel 36, the prophet Hearing from the Lord ends with this statement, then you will remember telling the nation of Israel when they get into the land, when God's fulfilled His promise, then you'll remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. That is a huge understatement. I mean, Israel was sacrificing children to Molech. And he says, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and for your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. That seems so harsh. Doesn't God want us to have a good self-image? No. God wants you to have an accurate self-image. God wants you to see yourself clearly. God wants you to remember your sin. I mean, it's interesting. God says he's going to forget our sin, but he doesn't want us to forget it. Why is that? Because if we remember our sin and remember where we were rescued from, Maybe, hopefully, it will prevent a repetition of that same sin. We'll trip in other ways, but not maybe, maybe not in, in that way. In addition, remembering our sin and where we were rescued from will cause us to boast in the one who rescued us. Like, I think it's interesting in Ephesians, um, the Apostle Paul writes 33 straight verses. 33 straight verses of just solid, amazing doctrine about the sovereignty of God and His character and how He brought about our salvation and His plan and our identity before we met Jesus and after we met Jesus. 33 verses without giving one command. And when He finally gives a command, His command is to remember. He says, remember. Remember that time when you were separate from Christ. Remember when you were lost. Can I just tell you, just in my own experience, nothing has stirred my affection for Christ like remembering from where He saved me. What an arrogant punk I was. Guys, remember. Remember that you were lost. God will rescue you. For the sake of his great name, God won't let you leave, won't leave you like he found you, and God will finish what he has started. And so, church, don't give up on you because God doesn't. Like I said, Divorce, addiction, failure, abortion, death. Do not get the final word. God does. And this is His final word repeated twice in the section of Scripture we'll be reading. God says, in the midst of all these amazing promises, I am the Lord. I have spoken. And I will do it. Let's pray. Father... uh, Only you can speak over a field of dry bones and bring life to them. And God, I thank you that you spoke over me when I was dead in my sin, when I was so arrogant and thinking I had it all together, comparing myself with those around me. And you rescued me. I thank you how you for how You rescued some of my brothers and sisters from the same trap. Some of us thought that we were too good for You. Others thought we were too bad for You. But God, You did not rescue us because we were awesome, but because You are awesome. For the fame of your name, for the glory of your son, you have rescued us and you are doing that even now. This morning we pray in Jesus' name, amen.